And in the coming weeks, we'll be uh, taking a trip through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians. It's in the New Testament. Uh, so you find the four Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, then Ephesians. And this evening, Phil will begin a series in Isaiah. Not so keen on that one. <laughs> Just some family news too. Uh, Keith and Anne, it's your last Sunday with us before heading back to Australia. God bless you in your journey. And uh, Bronnie isn't here yet, but she's in Australia at a wedding South Africa, I mean, uh, and she was 40 last week. So when she comes back, do you uh, say she doesn't look a day over 30? Uh, <laughs> we also have baptisms coming up on the 8th of July in our morning service here. If you haven't been baptized as a believer, please perhaps pray about it, talk to Jesus, ask why not. And also, uh, just to, to be in your prayers and recognize uh, friends from, partners from India, Chandra and Sheikh, who are going to be with us later in the month. And Maggie and Laurie Avery are returning from Turkey, having served there for about five years, I think it is. So um, please, please be in prayer for them as they, uh, as they return home. Just before we read, I just want to ask a couple of questions. I want you to think, what in your life has caused you to, to stop and celebrate? Was it a wedding? Was it the birth of a child? Or was it something that happened that caused you to just stop and marvel? I remember going um, uh, when I was, I don't know, 20, I think it was, I, I went uh, on a kind of summer break from university and I was in Kenya and I went from Nairobi and we were driving towards um, the Masai Mara to go and kind of like see the animals. And I remember driving up around this road, and the road, the bushes finished, and all of a sudden there's this this view of the Rift Valley. And it's astonishing. It's like, wow. And we had to stop and look at it and try and take photos and go, it just is not going to capture it. It was just astonishingly beautiful. What causes you to praise? I mean, it may be that you're, you're, you're kind of getting out the bunting and your uh, St. George's flags because England are going to be in the World Cup. Yeah, there's kind of mixed feeling about that. It may just be we're not going to get our hopes up because I'll be dashed too soon. There are times when people have flooded the streets in celebration. 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall. In the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, sadly, a cause of praise too short-lived. In Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to read it in a moment. Paul begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, verse uh, uh, 1 to 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that customary introduction and uh, a statement of the, the gospel, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he launches into it, and we're going we're gonna to give it a go in a minute uh, to read it. The next uh, verses 3 to 14, this single verse of praise, uh, translators do their best with it, and for ease of reading, they put in punctuation. But Paul doesn't. It's one single sentence, 202 words in Greek. I haven't counted them in English, I apologize. One theologian who quite likes his grammar said, the most, this is the most monstrous sentence conglomeration I have ever met in the Greek language. What a misery. 
we should dismiss that with a whimpering, as a whimpering whine. We hear in Paul's opening sentence, and it goes on, that God created Christ save and the Spirit blesses the world into which we have been born and are now growing up. Whatever has caused you to praise, this is more. As Paul writes this wonderful sentence, the horizons are vast, the heavens are high, the oceans are deep, and we have elbow room to spare. Occasionally with young people, I've set the challenge of trying to read this in one breath. None yet have managed it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with, the pleasure, with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I had a few breaths there. It's an astonishing sentence of doxology, words of declaration of praise. Paul launches for the Ephesian church and says, brothers and sisters, grasp this. Sometimes I read it out loud. Sometimes I like to kind of start quietly and crescendo because it gets more magnificent, like a wave upon wave of grace, wave upon wave of truth of the goodness of God, wave upon wave or increasing sound of the goodness of the gospel for all people, for this world, for us. Indeed, a crescendo. It just gets better. In the words of, I think it was Jiminy Cricket, and there's more. The young people have gone out, so they won't be confused by that. Why is that so important? Well, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. If you know your uh, geography and your history, you'll know that Ephesus was a port on the west coast of Turkey. It was a place of vibrant business. It was a place of occult worship. If you read in Acts, you'll understand something of that. Uh, It was a place of industry, of artisans, of bustle and life and uh, merchants and traders and visitors. It was a place of, of people coming and going. It was a place of ideas, a melting pot of ideas from the east and the west. It was a hub. And into that place, Paul went 
And Paul began to teach and speak of Jesus, first in the places where he knew there might be a favorable understanding about the Messiah with the Jewish congregations in the synagogues. But often they said, no, this is, this is not the faith, although it was. It's founded. Jesus is all about the Old Testament. And so he would begin to speak in the marketplaces and the public gatherings and declare about Jesus, the Savior of the world. And lo and behold... People started to respond. It's easy looking back with hindsight. It's easy looking back in history and thinking, of course, Edward. Of course that happens. We know the legacy and we watch programs and documentaries about Paul and his missionary journeys. And we know of 2,000 years of history. But Paul the pioneer in, in arriving in that commercial center with this good news was one amongst many. But he knew something in his heart. He knew something in his mind. He knew something with certainty that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for every person and good news for the world. And so in the gatherings of a few and a handful, a crescendo begins. As one by one and twos and threes and fives and more, people begin to turn to Jesus whether from a Jewish background or a non-Jewish background, turning to Jesus. Because the gospel, Jesus, is the power of God for salvation for every living person, every citizen, every child, every woman, every man, every person. This is good news for. And after a, a, a little bit of time, From a small group of believers, it may seem insignificant in the big picture of a bustling seaport. Paul speaks of Jesus. He he moves on because he's got other people to tell and other places to visit and share this miraculous, powerful word of Jesus, the good news. And he writes a letter back to the church and the house churches and those gathered in that place and, and starts off reminding them of the big picture. That what seems insignificant and small and a drop in the ocean compared to everything that else is going on. He speaks in this one profound, wonderful sentence that this is all encompassing. That the gospel of Jesus makes every difference and have confidence in what God is doing. From insignificant beginnings, this crescendo builds. And as we see in the writing in verse 10, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Praise be to God. He wants the church in Ephesus, and I'm sure the train is true for us. He wants the church, the gathered believers, the people of God in a particular place at a particular time to understand and hold on to and wrestle with the depth of this meaning, to let it percolate deep and wide and substantially into every corner of our thinking and emotional life and being because its power and scope is vast. God takes the initiative. It's 
God in the beginning at the start of Scripture. And God said, and God so loved the world. And it's about in the Scriptures, God, 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 Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The God who got the cosmos going. And God who sent his Son, Jesus Christ, and sends his Spirit. The focus is God. And who is God? We, we sometimes ask that question or oppose that question in different places. Talk about God. And sometimes we, we say, you know, how would you describe God? All powerful and all present and all knowing. Those are the omnis, if you remember those things. But those aren't phrases that Paul uses here. And I think this is just worth reminding ourselves. Not to say that those concepts, those understandings are in of themselves wrong. No. But when we read of God that Paul writes to the church about and wants to, to mark us and, re- and recover and bound us with, He describes God as the active one. God the Father, God Lord Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit. But a God who isn't distant or abstract or theoretical or impersonal, but involved and active. Listen to the words that are used. Blessed, chosen, destined, redeemed. That we are objects of his love, lavished, made known, included, marked. And that he sends and gives his Holy Spirit. There are words about God who is present and real and actively engaged with his world, with us, his people. The thing about those, those descriptions about God as being all-knowing and all-present and all-powerful, though they do describe something of him, they kind of make him set back. But when we describe him as, as the one who blesses us, that's involved, isn't it? Who chose us, that's that he's, he knows us, that he's involved, that he's predestined, he's redeemed, he's actively involved with us. You get the gist. One of the things I keep coming back to again and again is, is him who is with us, him who is amazing, him who is for us. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that he chose us. He chose us. Didn't your heart stop for a moment when Tim just shared that story of a child? He said, my biggest fear is that I'll be abandoned by my mum. Teenager in this building, day by day, week by week, fearful about being unloved and unwanted. And that's the heartbeat of so many of us and so many in the world of being alone. Thinking, am I just adrift in this ocean of life? What's the point? What's the purpose? Am I loved? Am I rejected? If people really knew me, here again in love, he chose us. And the thing about God is there's not a masquerade. The thing, about, the thing about God is he's not kind of just blissful thinking and wishful thinking about us. He sees every thought. He knows every inclination of our heart. And some of them are not that pleasant. You know yourself, don't you? And he sees with absolute clarity and says, I choose you. What's and all? 
with all your past and with everything in the present and who knows what might happen in the future. He says, I choose you. He chose us, not just on a whim and a fancy. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He chose us because we are matter. We matter to him. We're precious to him. That we should be holy. That we might be adopted as children through Jesus Christ according to this purpose of God. And that we should do all this to be the praise for the praise of his glorious grace that he's blessed us with. It's about God, his action, his work in this life that we're called to above and beyond and through and undergirding is his purpose at work. And to each and every person who thinks of themselves in the seven billion people on the planet, am I just a number or a statistic? No, absolutely not. Someone once described adoption like this, you know, when someone was struggling with, are they, are they loved in the grand scheme of things? And, and one day they were kind of looking at all these people having been abandoned and adopted. And this revelation dawned on them to say that, you know, it wasn't belittling the love of parents and children, but children come along and are loved by their parents. But when someone is adopted, there's a particular choice being made. It's not by virtue of just a natural birth. But someone choosing, I will take you as mine. An active, conscious, deliberate choice. Paul writes to the church, our salvation, our belonging, our choosing is all God's doing. Entirely God's initiative. Whoever, who, who amongst us remembers the Beano? A few uh, characters in there you might come across. Dennis the Menace was one of them in an old cartoon. Dennis and his little friend Joey are leaving Mrs. Wilson's house, and their hands are full of biscuits. And Joey says, I wonder what we did to deserve this. And Dennis answers, look, Joey, Mrs. Wilson gives us biscuits, not because we're nice, but because she's nice. And another boy was once asked, have you found Jesus? And he thought for a moment and replied, sir, I didn't know Jesus was lost. (laughs) But I did know, though, that when I was lost, he found me. No, deep down, the undergirding for us as a church is that he has chosen us. He has found us. It is his initiative. We're called together not by a good idea of a group of nice people getting together in a club. He called us and chose us and ordered us to be together because he is good. And his salvation is at work. His purposes are being worked out. And as we engage in mission and pray for this world, we can become disillusioned and think it seems like an uphill struggle. And certainly it might have seemed that for Paul in Ephesus with all the comings and goings of ideas and people and languages and and cultures and and ideologies. and, And what difference does this little man, Paul, little in stature and probably not great at oratory, what difference does it make? And he had every confidence because he could see behind the curtain and see the purposes of God being played out. The salvation of God. And it was true then and it's true now. Four great words of salvation. 
Paul speaks of them, of redemption. Redemption is being bought back, the price paid for our freedom. God has done it. It speaks about the blood of Jesus, the most common word in the New Testament to describe the death of Christ, of, of sacrifice, of sin being forgiven, of being made right with God, of forgiveness, of trespass, the result of salvation, of grace lavished upon us. Four great words in this overflow, this crescendo of praise that speak deeply to his action and of what he is doing in our life. Cosmic in scope. We come to Christ because we recognize we need him. We come to Christ because he reaches out and finds us and calls us by name. Absolutely. We call people to personal salvation, to repent and believe, to turn to Jesus and say, I need you, Jesus. Be my Lord and Savior. And that opportunity has been expressed in this meal and is, is open to you today. If you're undecided or unsure or want to begin a new life with this wonderful Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make it your choice today. It has to be that way. He is the way, the truth, and the life to all who would call on his name. He gives the right to become children of God. He chooses you. He wants you. He urges you to turn to him. But it doesn't stop there. Too often in Christianity and probably in the Western world, we have reduced the gospel to just personal salvation. Don't mishear me. Of course, it's personal salvation, but it's so much more. The cosmic scope, the universal implication. Of course, we start from knowing that we are redeemed from sin, that, that Jesus has borne the wrath of God on our behalf, that his blood cleanses us from all of our sin, and that we are justified because he bore our guilt. Hallelujah! but also that we belong to a movement headed for ultimate victory and conquest over every evil and sickness and the restoration of the whole universe, of all things being remade in his plans and purposes, the new heavens and the new earth, that every name, every knee in all of creation will bow before him as Lord. Aren't you glad about that? That it's more than just me. It's more than just me and my little life, although my little life is vital and important to him. But he reminds us that we're part of a bigger plan and a bigger purpose, a crescendo in all history. We long for the day when the nations will sit up and take note of the gospel, don't we? We're praying week by week for the persecuted church. And actually at the heart of that prayer is may Jesus be known and may lives turn to him. And cultures find their fulfillment in the wonderful Jesus. Not in uniformity, but in the vibrant tapestry of humanity, of every tribe and tongue and language, giving glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he reminds the church we're called to personal salvation and following Jesus personally, but living this out and that living it out one by one and two by two. Each of us doing our thing leads to an overwhelming statement about God's kingdom. 
Our witness matters and it starts from knowing God. But for those who are tired of corruption, where will they look to find a different way, perhaps? And I'm sure they'll find that Christians don't resort to corruption. We live in a culture that makes it quite difficult, but many cultures in the world, that's a huge issue to live with honesty and integrity. We were just hearing this week of referees in football being bribed. I mean, referees are meant to be impartial arbiters, aren't they? So a world tired of individualism that alienates, where will they find true community? Where will the lonely discover true companionship and sacrificial concern? Where will those tired of injustice find people who uphold justice and help others experience it? I wonder where. Of course, the answer is the redeemed community. The people of God who bring the kingdom of God. The scope is enormous. For the praise of God's glory in verses 11 to 12. Praise of God's glory. Now in, it, in this, uh, this passage, and you may, it may chastise me at the door later for, for being quick over a very deep, profound issue. There are hundreds of books and splits in denominations about this very issue. What does predestination mean? In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his purpose of his will. Does that mean some are not chosen? Some are. If you are a good theologian, you'll know if you read Calvin, you might have some views on that. If you're a Calvinist, you might have some even stronger views on that. You may be thinking, I'm about to go woolly and say that I'm a universalist and say something deeply heretical. You're on the edge of your seats now, aren't you? Some of you are wondering, what on earth is he on about? Never heard of this debate. Let me put it three ways. There are three options about predestination, I think. Drastically simplifying. God chooses. We choose. Or the devil chooses. What do I mean? Do I mean that God chooses us to be his? Do I mean that the devil chooses some to be his and they're they're eternally forsaken and never have a chance of of eternal life, or is it all about our choice? I mean, the astute and the smart amongst you have already worked out the answer to this one. Well, firstly, let's discount the devil because he's not powerful enough. And there seems to be no sense in Scripture in which he is given that authority. So we're left with this choice of either we believe God chooses us, Or we believe that it's about our action of choosing God. And I'm glad it's God who chooses us. 
Because if it's left to us, if it's about my choice, if it's about my choice and your choice, ultimately, that we have to, we're left with the burden of choice and we have to work at it and think, have we done enough and believed enough? Are we sure enough every single day of our life? What happens if we forget today? Does that mean we're no longer chosen because it's left in my court? Do you see how deeply insufficient and And tragic that view is. In him, verse 11, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his purpose. I certainly believe that God chooses. My theology, if you're interested, is that Jesus' death on the sacrifice is once for all people. For every person, in every place, in every age, in every nation, known or unknown by the geographers. He's the savior of the world. And I fundamentally believe that he has died for everyone's sin and all to receive the option and the choice to turn to him. That's why we believe in mission. That's why we Say, let's reach the nations. Not just us, but the body of Christ corporate. And we were, and we are, saved and preserved in this wonderful closing of this monstrous, epic sentence. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. That When we believe, God takes up residence. No longer do we go to churches and and kind of see that as the place where God dwells in some holy place beyond a rail and we kind of can't go there but special people. Or no longer do we look at places uh, that are built and that are temples and, and sacrifices are offered there. Where does God dwell? Well, he dwells in all places, but he particularly says, I will reside in my church, my believers, my family, my children. The Holy Spirit given within us as a mark, a seal, a deposit. How do we know we belong? Because the Spirit has been given. How? And what's the point of that? To remind us that this is but the beginning. And how wonderfully glorious it will be in the fulfillment when we see him face to face, all heavens, all earth being renewed and the dwelling of God once more with humanity and his glorious recreation. In this opening sentence to the church in Ephesus, he dives straight in and says, church, do you see? 
dear believers, in your life and your living and your work and your struggling and enduring and in your persecution and your striving, see who he is. Let it sink again and again and again deeply into the very mind and heart of every sister and brother and the the nature and the ethos of the gathered community, the church. Because these are the tram lines, this is the track, this is the direction. This is the power of God at work. And of course it's personal and of course it's me and of course it's you and encountering God personally. But in that moment, he broadens and enlarges and says, do you see the purposes of God for all peoples? In the, in the letter to the church in Colossae, he would say that this is for whole of creation impact to the praise of his glory. I started and said, what have you been praiseworthy for recently? There's lots of things we can celebrate. But I pray maybe just a little bit later you may begin, or maybe with your family, give it a go at reading this one sentence in one breath and have a bit of a chuckle, but see how far you get. And in the fact you can't get all the way through, if you can, come and let me know and I'll come and assess you because I'll be amazed. But actually, there's a sin, something simple in there that says there's so much more for us to gas, grasp and gather. And the enormity of God's purposes at work. If that doesn't thrill you and excite you and provoke you, I don't know what will. Let's pray. Let's stand together.